If you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Haggai. Uh, Again, if you forgot where that is or if you weren't aware that it's a real book, it's the third book from the end of the Old Testament. Um, And we started it last week to start off our new year talking about keeping God as our first priority. We're going to be continuing this week to the end of chapter one, which isn't really that far to go, but there's a lot that gets said and explained here in the next four verses that we'll be covering today. There are two ways in which God's people can be deceived. The first is is pretty obvious. The first way that God's people can be deceived is is really pretty obvious. And it's the the way that we are usually uh, most likely to be on guard against. And that is, of course, by false teaching. When somebody teaches something that is completely contrary to Scripture, there has always, always, always throughout the history of the church, there's always been an abundance of false teachings that have come both from within and from without the church in general. And this is why the Apostle John encouraged his audience to test every spirit to see if they were true. And the church throughout the ages, the church has responded to false teachings through the the centuries by uh, coming together and deciding what is true. And one of the ways they do that is drafting creeds and proclaiming certain beliefs to be heretical. This is what happened at the First Council of Nicaea. If you were here for our Christmas Eve service, you already heard the story, but I'll give you a nutshell story of the Council of Nicaea, the First Council of Nicaea. There was a teacher named Arius whom the people loved. He was supposed to be a, a great speaker, and he gathered masses around him, but he was teaching something that didn't line up with Scripture. He was teaching that Jesus was less than fully God. And so the church came together declaring Arianism to be heretical. By the way, when Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, that's what they believe. They are Arian. Uh, So the the church came together in the fourth century uh, declaring Arianism to be heretical. And as a way of kind of keeping that pronouncement in place, they also drafted what came to be known as the Nicene Creed. Now, just to preface our our understanding of creeds with this, creeds themselves are not equally authoritative with Scripture, but they nevertheless summarize the clear teachings of Scripture. So the Nicene Creed, for example, begins by proclaiming this, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. Okay, does that line up with Scripture? Yeah, it does, of course. Uh, And it continues, in in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Remember, this is what they're guarding against. They're guarding against the idea that he's not the Son of God, that he's not equal to God. So in, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And, and it goes on and on and gives you a really full definition of the hypostatic union, the, the idea that Christ is fully God and fully man. So again, this creed itself isn't Scripture, right? But does it line up with Scripture? That's really the question. And yes, it does. It does line up with Scripture. So the purpose of the creed is to summarize Scripture and thereby kind of serve as, as a shield or, or a protection 
uh, for Scripture from being used to support false teachings, such as the idea that Jesus is not fully God and fully man. So creeds are authoritative, but only insofar as they faithfully reflect the teachings of Scripture. So the first way we can be deceived is by the presence of false teachings. The second way that God's people can be deceived is by the absence of truth. The first way is by the presence of something false. The second is the absence of truth. That is, for example, let's just say that we're never, in, in church, we're, we just never mention the fact that salvation is found in Christ alone. We would be prone to being greatly, greatly deceived by having not been exposed to the truth that there is salvation in no other name. And one of the greatest tragedies that the church has ever faced has come this way, by the absence of truth. It's come in the last 60 years as two of the most significant doctrines of the faith have been all but forgotten and ignored. Those two doctrines are the doctrines of repentance and the doctrine of obedience unto God. In the book, Return to Me, a study of the doctrine of repentance, which is kind of a, a, a book that summarizes the whole doctrine of repentance, book by book through the whole Bible. Every book has touches on repentance. And, uh, and just kind of gives you a fuller definition or understanding of the doctrine of repentance. And in this book, the author notes that while there was a healthy degree of emphasis on the doctrines of repentance and obedience unto God in the first half of the 20th century, it was all but forgotten and ignored in the second half. And many well-known teachers within Christian circles, have gone so far into error as to teach that neither repentance nor obedience unto God are necessary for the Christian life. It's then no wonder that these words are rarely spoken in pulpits across our nation. So the question I have for anyone who thinks that these doctrines are unnecessary is this. You know, if if they're not necessary, if these doctrines are totally insignificant, why do we find the theme of repentance throughout the book of the Bible, throughout every book of the Bible? In fact, repentance is the central theme, the main theme of the book of Haggai. And so if repentance is insignificant, if it's not important, books like Haggai would have to be deemed unimportant, and insignificant, irrelevant as well. To the contrary, however, books like Haggai are extremely significant for us because repentance is still a doctrine that is vital to every Christian because it is solid evidence of God's saving grace in your life. As Charles Spurgeon famously said, quote, sin and hell are married, unless repentance declares the divorce. One of the great tests of true conversion within a person, one which is startlingly accurate, is how an individual responds when the word of God confronts their thoughts, confronts their feelings, their ideas, and their actions. How do you respond When the word of God clearly labels as sin something that in your flesh you love, you enjoy, and you're even inclined to practice. 
When somebody humbly submits themselves to abstaining from something that their flesh loves, it is a strong, strong piece of evidence that God has truly regenerated them and that they are indeed born of God, that they are children of God. And as we began our study of Haggai last week, we saw the call to repentance being proclaimed to the Israelites who had returned to Jerusalem after the exile. And they'd begun to rebuild the temple 16 years before Haggai came to the scene. But when their devotion to worshiping God offended their neighbors, they decided to postpone their obedience to God. They decided to just put off obedience to God. A real quick word for you. If you've ever been in the situation where you thought, well, I'll be more devoted to God when such and such happens. You know, when I grow up, finally, I'll be more devoted to God. When I get a job someday, I'll be more devoted to God. We've all done this to to some extent or another. And so this book is for us for this reason. So Haggai urged the people to consider their ways and to see how all of their work and all of their deeds and all the things that they treasured, how unfulfilling and unsatisfying all this was, and to see that there's a correlation between joyful fulfillment in life and obedience unto God, and to see that their disobedience unto God had very serious consequences. God had sent a drought and a famine upon the land that they had worked so hard to redevelop. But he had sent something else. He sent drought, he sent famine, and he sent something else. He sent Haggai. He sent Haggai to show them that God was behind the drought and the famine and to urge the people to repent and to obey. So how would the Israelites respond? Uh, I've already given you something of a spoiler last week by telling you that this is a, a rare exception through the Old Testament that these people actually do repent. And that's exactly what they do. So we read in Haggai chapter 1, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. So what we see here is as a result of Haggai's faithful preaching and the work of the Holy Spirit in preparing the hearts and minds of the people to hear the message, to understand the message, to apply the message, to act upon it. So in the midst of all this, there is repentance. And the author tells us that this repentance includes Zerubbabel, who is the acting governor of Jerusalem. Next, the author tells us that the high priest himself, Joshua, also repented. And third, the remnant of the people repented. How do we know? It doesn't say the word repent, but what did they do? They obeyed. They all obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai the prophet, whom God had sent. In an age in which human philosophy, human wisdom, science All these things are competing with the word of God to direct and form and mold our thoughts and opinions and ideas. This passage serves as something of a wake-up call to return to recognizing the authority and the sufficiency of God's word as revealed in Scripture. 
But it's also a reminder that it's the preacher's job to faithfully interpret, understand, and proclaim a message from God. And to be honest, I fear that for many in my profession, this responsibility is taken far too lightly. One megachurch pastor in recent years proclaimed that his church wasn't for Christians, but that it was for the lost. And if his congregants wanted more doctrine, he got up in front of them and he mocked them. He says that you can find a new church where, quote, you can stuff your face until you're so obese spiritually that you can't even move, end quote. Just to clarify, reaching the lost is great. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for reaching the lost. But by definition, the church isn't for unbelievers, The Greek word for church, it comes from two Greek words that are put together. It basically means called out ones. And while we certainly want to welcome unbelievers to come and to worship with us, the first priority of our coming together, the first priority of our gathering on Sunday mornings or whenever we gather is to glorify God. That is number one. And having been to this guy's church, the guy who, who gave this quote that I gave you, having been to his church a few times, I can assure you that there is very, very little proclamation of God's word there. But it's not just his church. It's not just his church. This is a problem that is now at epidemic levels across our nation. Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his day, which wasn't that long ago, He said, quote, there can be no doubt whatsoever that all the troubles in the church today and most of the troubles in the world are due to a departure from the authority of the Bible, end quote. So we have to understand that not all the things that Haggai was preaching, all the things that he spoke were directly inspired by God, at least not in the same sense that scripture is inspired by God. We have to understand that while we don't want to make the mistake of viewing the words of a preacher as being as authoritative as Scripture, if some preacher says, you know, God told me I need to buy an airplane. <laughs> Anybody ever heard a preacher say that? I mean, you know, it's just one of those things, right? You'd think it would never happen, but recently it's happening all the time. And why do they do it? Because God told them to do it. And so really what they're saying is this idea is as sacred as Scripture, and so you don't want to challenge it. So we don't want to make the mistake of viewing the words of a preacher as being as authoritative as Scripture in and of themselves, but we also don't want to make the mistake of viewing the sermon as just you know, a, a speech about God. There's a huge difference between preaching and a speech. As one commentator notes, he says, quote, God's words are powerful, but God has ordained the preaching of his word by faithful preachers as the primary means in which his message is to be delivered to the world. End quote. And that's why Paul pleaded with Timothy in the preaching chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And of course, Timothy was a young preacher in his own right. And Paul says to him, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That is, read the scriptures when you gather Read them publicly and show the people who are listening what God is exhorting them to do in his word. 
and teach them how to do it. Read, interpret, apply. Repeat, read, interpret, apply. You know, just keep doing this, Timothy, is what he's saying. And Paul would continue by writing, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for, so, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The words of a preacher have to be tested and measured against the word of God as revealed in scripture. But we must understand that God does use the faithful preaching of his word to instruct and admonish us and that the words that are preached, like the creeds, are authoritative but only insofar as they reflect the truth of scripture. And so with that said, it is sad it's it's frustrating and and maybe it's even pathetic to see how rarely the doctrines of repentance and obedience are preached or even mentioned in sermons these days but that's what haggai did that's what haggai did he preached repentance he preached obedience and what happened the people obeyed they repented but not necessarily everyone in Jerusalem. We want to make note of this. Not necessarily everyone. Look at the text. Look at what it says. It says that Zerubbabel and Joshua repented. And who else? The remnant. The remnant repented. Remember, this is 16 years after they came to Jerusalem. The city is healthy again. More people are coming in. The remnant repents. There's a narrowing down that we see between verse 2, where these people are addressed, and verse 12, where all of the remnant are said to have repented. How many are there? Who, who's the remnant? Well, let, let's start with that. Who's the remnant? The term is maybe most commonly associated with Elijah, who cried out to God when he thought that he was the only faithful soul left on the earth, and he was about to be killed. Paul writes this. He's reflecting on, on Elijah's story in Romans chapter 11. He says, in Romans chapter 11, verses 2 to 4, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. And Paul continues, he says, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So here we see how true Job's words were. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is entirely of the Lord. It's not our doing, and it wasn't the remnant's doing. Who kept them? God kept them. It was his doing. He kept 7,000 people in Elijah's time set aside, untainted by the world, faithful unto himself. And so the remnant were those whom God chose and kept for himself through the ages. So how many of the people in Jerusalem were of the remnant? We don't know. It, it doesn't say. Maybe it was all of them. Maybe it was everybody in Jerusalem. But the text doesn't tell us. So it's something that God didn't feel we need to know. What we do know is that everyone who responded to Haggai's message in obedience and in repentance was part of the remnant. 
the response to the message of repentance and restored obedience is the proof that God's grace was upon them, that he was keeping them for himself. Their ears were opened to hear the message, and the sense of fear and awe and reverence for God returned to them. And once again, they could see the ugliness and the filth of their sin for what it was in comparison to the glorious splendor of God's holiness. Why had they lived in sinful disobedience for roughly 16 years? Because they had lost the fear of the Lord. Because they had lost the fear of the Lord. Without a place of worship, nobody was out proclaiming God's word. Nobody was out teaching God's word because that offended the neighbors. Oh, we're going to rebuild the temple. We're, we're going to do it someday, but not now. Now's not the time. Now's the time to build our paneled houses. Without a faithful proclamation of God's word, the people lost the fear of the Lord. How many of you know that there's a connection between holy living and having a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord? That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Verse 1, he says, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord, or the fear of God. The people had lost the fear of God, and thus any sense of holy living was also lost. But as the word of God was proclaimed once again, the fear of the Lord returned to them. And as the people feared the Lord properly once again, they loved him properly again as well. And they, as they loved him properly, they repented and obeyed his word. But we have to see here that they had to be reminded. They had to be, it had to be brought to the forefront of their minds. God needed to bring their disobedience to their attention with there being such a lack of teachings on the doctrines of repentance and obedience in our country, maybe we shouldn't be surprised to see such incredible and widespread moral decline in our country and spiritual apathy. Who is reminding the people of God in our nation to repent and to obey the Lord? Sadly, very few. Why is there so much sin in the modern American church? I fear that it's possibly because holiness is no longer taken seriously. And the reason that holiness isn't taken seriously is because sin isn't taken seriously. And the reason that sin isn't taken seriously is because the doctrines of repentance and obedience are offensive They'll drive people away. People who don't want to hear the message. But these doctrines are necessary. And without repentance and obedience unto God being preached regularly, the gospel isn't being preached either. We must return to preaching the gospel. We must return to preaching repentance and obedience unto God. And so I bring you back to the question that we kind of started with. How do you respond when the scriptures clearly label as sin something that in your flesh you love, 
you enjoy and you are inclined to practice. Jesus once told a parable of a seed sower. The seed sower went out into the fields and he scattered seed about. And Jesus brings to our attention the fact that there are differing qualities of soil. In fact, there are four different qualities of soil. Some of the seed fell on the trail or the side of the trail where the ground may have been clear of any weeds, but it was hard and impenetrable. So the seed sat on the surface until the birds of the sky came and ate it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, ground where there was a lot of rocks, but not a lot of dirt, not a lot of soil, very shallow soil. And so the seed that fell on rocky ground died as quickly as it sprang up because there wasn't enough soil to sustain its life to the extent that it could handle the heat of the sun. The third seed fell among thorns, and the thorns would choke out and destroy any vegetation that would compete with it for space. And finally, Jesus tells us that other seed fell onto good soil and produced a rich harvest. The disciples, they listened to this, and they had no idea what Jesus was talking about. They they were like, why are you giving us this lecture on agriculture, Jesus? So Jesus explains it in clear terms for them, telling telling them that the seed represented the word of God and the soil represents the human heart. So the point wasn't to teach agriculture 101 so that you can have a more fruitful field. No, the point of this parable was that there will only be positive, fruitful, God-glorifying response to the word of God in the heart that has been properly prepared to receive it. Repentance is the evidence. It's one strong piece of evidence of God's sovereign grace. Working to soften our conscience, soften our hearts, preparing us to receive the word of God humbly and to respond properly. How we respond when the scriptures confront us or rebuke us or correct us speaks volumes about the condition of our hearts. Do we we press on rebelliously in sin despite what the scriptures tell us? Or do we experience brokenness? Do we experience anguish? Do we experience grief over our sin, leading us to repentance and leading us to humble ourselves in obedient submission unto God? The people that Haggai preached to, the remnant that God had kept for himself in this time, feared the Lord again, and they humbled themselves in obedient submission. And how does God respond to their humble submission unto him? How does he respond to their repentance? Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you, declares the Lord. I love that. This is a wonderful and comforting declaration isn't it? Imagine being completely blind as you stumble through a city that you've never been in before. 
you have no idea really where you're going. And as you know, you're, you're walking cautiously, you can't help but you know, run into people. You're slipping from time to time as your footing is unsure. But suddenly somebody puts their arm around you and whispers with a familiar voice in your ear, I'm with you. And they walk with you. I, I, I don't know if that, if that illustration can even come close I don't know if we can imagine what a deep sense of relief something like that would bring. But we must see that while this is a wonderful declaration by God, it's more than just a declaration. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. It is certain. And we must understand that this is not just some little insignificant statement that God is giving them. It's not just a small thing. It's not insignificant by any means because it represents a very serious change in tone by the Lord. He was offended. God was offended and maybe even angry before his people repented as they continued on in their disobedience. But when they turned from their disobedience, when they repented, they found the promise of God's blessing, his presence, and his abundant grace right there waiting for them. And as we go through life in the 21st century, we would be foolish to think that we don't face the very same temptations that these people face, the the temptations that these Israelites faced to lose confidence in God's promises, to start believing, you know, maybe he's not that trustworthy or maybe he's forgotten all about his promises. When life gets hard, and life does get hard sometimes, we might be forced to realize that God doesn't always do things the way we expected him to do things. And I think it's easy for us to get maybe a little bit too caught up in the victory that we have in Christ to the point where we start thinking that it isn't God's will or it isn't God's plan for us to go through valleys in life, for us to go through difficult times, for us to suffer afflictions, whether emotional or physical. There are very real Christians who upon receiving bad news from the doctor or receiving bad news from the bank or bad news from their spouse or wherever, receiving bad news, they react by instantly jumping to a question like, how can God let this happen to me? And I'm no exception, by the way. I've I've been there, I've done that, and yeah, you know, I, I have the scars to prove it. Our temptation when God leads us through affliction, when God leads us through a storm, a valley, a trial, is to lose the sense of awe and wonder and fear of God. Because we had some kind of image of God before, but it was incompatible with our own suffering or our enduring some type of affliction. And once we get to the point where our previous image, our previous conception of God has been shattered into pieces, friends, it is only a hop, skip, and jump away from testing our self-sufficiency. That is from trying to become our own source of hope. Trying to find hope in what we can do rather than in what God has promised. But in the moment, we don't see how that promise is being fulfilled. But I'm here to tell you 
that if you are a child of God, saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, if you are a child of God, this promise that God declares to the faithful remnant of Israel is as true for you today as it was for them then. So repent of any inclination that you might have towards self-reliance or self-sufficiency. Repent and see that Christ is entirely sufficient for your every need. And resolve to trust entirely in him, even when you don't understand how this is possibly his way of being faithful to his promises. Walk confidently with Jesus, knowing and trusting that the one who declared, Lo, I am I'm with you until the end of the age, is the same one who's sovereign over every storm, every trial, every affliction, and walk confidently through life, through the valleys, in light of this truth, that he is with you, There is no other group of people on the face of the planet. There is no other religion in the history of the world that's ever had this hope. This is a hope. This is a a promise, a guarantee that God has offered only to his people. And it's a promise that has allowed Christianity to flourish and to thrive, even when it starts to look, on the the surface, when it starts to look as if all hope should be lost. That's why Tertullian once famously said, you can't exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because of this hope, because of this promise, we can join Paul in saying to live is Christ, to die is gain. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Friends, please hear me when I say this. This hope that God offers, this promise, only belongs to those who have placed saving faith in Christ, thereby becoming children of God for those who remain steadfast in sin, for those who will not turn from their rebellious disobedience toward God, who refuse to repent and submit obediently unto God, the only thing that Scripture ever promises you is God's judgment. But for those who will turn from their sin, for those who will wage war with their desires in the flesh and refuse to continue living in disobedience unto God, there is evidence of God's amazing grace and this promise is for you, that God is with you. God's response here to the repentance of the remnant is a foreshadowing of the response that God has today to our repentance. Jesus said, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's from Luke 15, 7. This is a reminder of God's unfailing covenant love for his people and the way to find that love again when we lose sight of it is to repent, to obey, and to trust him. 
But we have to see that God isn't done with them yet. He gives them this amazing promise. But he doesn't just leave it at that. So we continue reading verses 14 and 15. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So why did they do this? Because God stirs up their spirits. God stirs up the spirits of Zerubbabel, of Joshua, and the remnant. Did they make a declaration and resolve to do this on their own power? By their own resolve? By their own faithfulness? No, it says the Lord himself stirred up the spirits of the faithful remnant. Let's be really clear about one thing. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes. And yet, in his sovereign wisdom, power, and love, he has ordained that humanity would be a means by which he would accomplish his eternal sovereign purposes. We're thus reminded by our passage today, not only that God is with his people but that he empowers us to do what he would have us do. He's the one who stirs our hearts. On our own, we have nothing to offer God but filthy rags. All of our best deeds are like filthy rags to him. That's all we've got. The verdict on all of humanity, apart from God, is already in. And the most righteous, holy judge in the entire universe has declared There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. That's from Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. That's the pronouncement. That's the verdict on humanity apart from God. But God in his great mercy, reverses every single one of these pronouncements through the atoning and redeeming work of Christ. Though none is righteous, Christ himself died as the just for the unjust, taking the sin of his people upon himself and imputing his own righteousness to all who would place saving faith in him. Though there would be no understanding among us. He sent the Holy Spirit to be our helper. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to be our helper and to give us an understanding of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Though none seeks for God, Jesus' mission was to seek and save all whom the Father would draw to him. Though we had all turned away, he replaced our incessantly rebellious hearts of stone with hearts of living flesh that desire and turn to God. Though we had become useless, he stirs us up and he empowers us to be useful to him. Apart from God's regenerating work, we would never come to Christ because coming to Christ would be good, 
right? Everybody agree that somebody coming to Christ is good? But the Bible says none is good. Apart from God's regenerating work, nobody would come to Christ. And though his word declares that on our own none is good, we see that goodness is actually a fruit of the Spirit. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence within an individual, which we bear by his power in us. And this is all because of the atoning work of Christ. Every pronouncement from that verdict is reversed by believing in Jesus, by putting saving faith in him. And so I ask you today, are you trusting in Christ as your only hope? Are you trusting in the grace of God as a promise? Consider that God is with all who have saving faith in Christ and how that reality is impacting or should be impacting our lives today. How can this truth encourage us to live more fully and with greater resolve for the glory of God alone by the power of God within us? See, all of our hearts need to be stirred by God regularly. He does it with his Holy Spirit. He does it with his word. But we can't do it on our own. We can't stir our hearts, our spirits on our own. We need him daily. We need him always because all of our actions, everything that we do, needs to be lived under the glory of God empowered by God. So let us turn from any illusion, and that's exactly what it is, any illusion of self-sufficiency, and place our trust and our hope solely and firmly in Christ. And let it be our prayer that a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord would characterize us and that it would guide us to holy living. And that as we regularly repent and obey and grow in holiness, God would stir our spirits to do the good works in Christ that God has created and called and planned for us to do for our growth and for his eternal glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you once again for your word, for reminding us that it is sufficient, that every single word is authoritative over our lives, and that it teaches us everything that we need to know about living in a way that would please you. And we pray today, Lord, that that would be our desire, to please you. So we pray, Lord, that in the silence of our hearts, you would convict us of the areas where we haven't repented, where we haven't obeyed, where we haven't desired to do what you call us to do. And we pray that you would empower us not only to repent, but to do the good works that you called us to do through Christ. Help us, Lord, to see 
that he is entirely sufficient for all of our needs. And teach us, Lord, to be a people who glorify you through holy living. In Christ's name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.